Hey there, it's Randy Crenshaw. You don't know me, but I'm the, your, your most unfamous off-camera voice ever that you never see, and you're listening to Stories of the Magic, and you're in the right place. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 29 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. In this episode, we pick up where we left off with Randy Crenshaw for part two of his interview. If you missed the first part in the previous episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's a lot of fun, highly entertaining. In this episode, Randy talks about some of the singing he did in Phineas and Ferb, including a brief demonstration, his work on Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, and some other Warner Brothers animation projects, how Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain might be considered a precursor to Phineas and Ferb, the work he did for TV shows like John Doe and Walker, Texas Ranger. It may not be what you ever expected. Changes in the way sound-alikes are used in TV, movies, and even albums and why it is the way it is now. I had no idea. Albums he sang on, and in some places played instruments on, like Mickey Unwrapped, and how that was so different than the stuff that comes out today, and with singers like Rosemary Clooney, who personally invited him to be on her White Christmas album, Vince Gill, Amy Grant, and Mary Rice Hopkins, among others. Working as a vocal contractor for the Academy of Country Music Awards, and how that's changed over the years why it's challenging to be a children's recording artist for a long period of time, what he started out doing in music when he came to California. It wasn't singing. Matching what you have a passion for with what you're skilled at doing, and why that's so important, even though people will try to talk you out of it. Singing on the soundtracks for a Goofy movie, moving on from Pigs to Possums for this one, and Newsies. Stunt singing, and the special kind of person it takes to do that. The reality of his life as a freelancer, and what you can learn from it, even though you may have a so-called, quote, secure job. And what got him interested in working for Disney. Yes, we finally make it back to Disney again. I say wow a lot in this episode. Honestly, with very good reason. After the interview, I get to share another song from Randy. And this one's... unusual. From last year's Disney movie flop, not John Carter, the other one, Mars Needs Moms, this is a track called Martian Mambo that composer John Powell constructed, using Randy and two other singer friends of his, where they made every sound you hear on the recording with just their voices, and then John digitally sampled their voices to create what he imagined an alien-sounding dance track might sound like. It features what Randy likes to call the world premiere of the Crenshaw Flatuphone, whereby he makes really horribly loud raspberry sounds with his lips, and then those are used as the bass sound for the song. But they still sound like, well, tuned flatulence. This is a bit of an awkward transition, but before diving in, I do still want to remind you about Ears for Isaac, which Aaron and Jason from Dole Whips and Dark Rides shared about last week. If you didn't hear it last week, you can go back and listen to the last 15 minutes or so of the previous episode, 
or go to storiesofthemagic.com slash EFI. That's EFI as in Ears for Isaac. And that'll redirect you to a blog post where you can read about it. Then please support them, financially, by sharing it with others, or however you can. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and continue this story. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by Jewelbeat.com And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. I remember back in episodes 8 and 9, I think it was, of this podcast, I had Laura Dickinson on. Oh, yeah, And she talked about Sophia the First and how incredibly proud she was to be a part of that project. Yeah, Laura did some great character singing stuff on some of the songs before. I've heard her work. She did terrifically. She's uh, another person who's been active in in other, you know, Disney TV kind of things. We've both worked on Phineas and Ferb, for instance. She's done terrific singing on a number of different things. So I'm a big admirer, mutual admirer of Laura. With good reason. Is there anything that, any particular songs or anything that you did for Phineas and Ferb that we might recognize? You would recognize uh, the the biggest, highest profile one, I'm proud to say, is the um, Perry the Platypus theme, which uh, Perry the Platypus, for those who don't follow the show. And if you don't follow the show, what's wrong with you? <laughs> exactly. And there might be two or three of those people out there who either don't follow the show or don't know any children who watch it. But it's great fun, and there's a recurring a character who's kind of a duck-billed platypus detective character. So, you know, he fights the bad guys and finds out what's going wrong. He wears kind of a fedora, and his name is Perry. So whenever Perry appears, he has to have that secret agent, you know, superhero kind of music. So Danny Jacob, who does a lot of the music for the show, was kind enough to invite me in to sing on it. And he basically said, okay, I really want you to do kind of chewing on the scenery over the top, you know, that sort of James Bondian 
Thunderball kind of approach. Remember when Tom Jones sang that on Thunderball? So, okay, <laughs> I couldn't make it too big and too over the top for those guys. <laughs> and that is what they ended up using. And then, so because it shows up in most episodes, it's become this wonderful gift that keeps on giving. It's like a miniature theme in the show and made it into the extended, you know, movie version of the show. I went back and sang additional verses. So we love that. We love that. Wow. So it's it's great. And, and you know, here's the funny thing. When I go places and do concertizing, and, uh, you know, I'm doing it for for teenagers and, and younger, they won't know any of the people I've ever worked with, you know, no matter how famous they are. But if if anybody mentions, you know, Harry the Platypus, they've all heard that. <laughs> in in use, oh, great, you know, they'll just start screaming, oh, sing that, sing that. So, <laughs> and do you give them a few bars? I do, I do, just, just to, you know, get them out of my hair. <laughs> get them off my back. That's fun stuff, so, you know. But it's it's hilarious. That's what constitutes celebrity, you see. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, aren't you going to be impressed? I worked with Bob Dylan, and uh, you know, and I worked with you know Rod Stewart, and you know, and named all these people. And they go, who? <laughs> but but Perry the Platypus, they all know Perry. Oh yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, could could you indulge our audience and give me just a few bars there? Of that yes, yes. Here's the big. Uh, now this is where you have to kind of. Hold the speakers away. Okay. He sings something along the lines of, Perry, Perry the platypus. (laughs) 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 You know, there's a whole line about he's the web-footed master of action or something like that. You know, very funny lyrics by the guys who are the show creators. I marvel at every episode that they can come up with such amazing lyrics for these songs. Yeah, the guys that write lyrics also do, uh, you know, most of the uh, writing and creating of the show, and they're very creative guys. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and and they're featured a lot, by the way, in, in musical uh, moments as well as, as some of them in, in voicing the characters. So no, it's really terrifically cast and terrifically done. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that's a fan just because... It has fun stuff for young viewers, and but you can watch it as an older viewer like myself and laugh and and get a bunch of great jokes too. So it works like the best animation on multiple levels. Yeah, I could not agree more. I really couldn't agree more. Now, speaking of questioning our sanity, <laughs> I have to wander off Disney for just a second because of a couple of things I saw in your television credits. Okay. Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain. <laughs> and Tiny... I should add in Tiny Toons. <laughs> well, of course. You know, that was that classic slate of Warner Brothers um, animation that happened there. And I was just thrilled to see it happen because it was really a throwback to, you know, all the classic Chuck Jones kind of uh, Bugs Bunny and the whole slate of things that Warner Brothers was associated with. So when Spielberg and company started creating these things, they really had a budget and they had a mandate listen, let's do it like the original, let's write original music, let's make them funny, funny for adults to watch as well as kids. Mm -hmm. And I think they really, for several years, they kind of had their own little golden era of it. And they they just, I thought, did terrific work. Oh, absolutely. So I sang on the Animaniacs theme, so I was 
thrilled about that. But then, then occasionally in episodes, you know, we'd come in and sing on these things where, you know, these huge tour de force things like, you know, them singing the, you know, the 50 states of the U.S. or it was really educational, but done in a hilarious way. Mm-hmm. And uh, later got to do character stuff in episodes of of some of the other WB shows like, um, oh, gosh, there was um, Freakazoid was one that I showed up in several episodes of besides Animaniacs, the Pinky and the Brain. I sang on the theme for that as well. And, and in certain episodes, we'd come in and, and do fun things there, too. Just great. You know, writing was so clever, so well done. And then the, the voice actors and everybody involved were just incredible. Yeah, it seems like uh, in some ways, uh, Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain were almost conceptual precursors to Phineas and Ferb where you've got that real intellectual, intelligent humor, but it's still fun and engaging for kids. You know what? That's a really good observation. And now when I think about it, I think you're absolutely right. Because they really, they operated always on multiple levels. And that, to me, is the secret of of doing really good, lasting entertainment. Because remember, kids are going to come around every couple of years. There's going to be a new crop of, you know, eight-year-olds, for instance. And they're always going to love what they love. Mm-hmm. So that's great. But meanwhile, all the adults around them, if they're going to love the thing, it has to appeal to them at some level too, like intelligent, funny, witty, uh, emotional. You know, it's It's got to be done so that they can stand to hear it 20 times, which is how many times their kids will watch and play the stuff. Right. So, I, you know, the best stuff always works. And I think Walt had it down with in the Disney, you know, world that, you know, this stuff has to appeal to the child within us, but it has to appeal to the grown-up, too. Mm-hmm. And the best stuff always works on those levels, you know. Yeah. So I, I do love that that slate of WB things. They just kind of, I think they ran out of commitment to fund it. But, gosh, it still has its audience that, you know, has every episode, you know, on DVD and loves it. Mm-hmm. I wish I could say I had it on DVD. I used to watch it, it when it first aired, and I had videotapes. I actually oh, recorded man. each episode off the TV onto VHS as it aired. So wow. I have seven videotapes of the shows <laughs> oh. from when they aired. <laughs> wow. Well, you're a true fan then, obviously. I enjoy it, and as soon as the DVDs came out, I had to buy those just because, you know, they have them all in a great collection. You know, and there's that thing about usually, like I said, when I do work, I have to practically go out and hire detectives to prove that I worked on it because I'm off camera. You never see me, and that's really as it should be. You know, my wife says I have a face made for radio. <laughs> so, so, you know, for us to prove that we're on it, we almost have to have the recordings, have some version of it. Mm-hmm. And especially with my own kids, I said, yeah, listen, there's your old dad. <laughs> Do they ever get tired of you doing that? Oh, all the time. Yeah, they just roll their, <laughs> they roll their eyes down. Dad, they're so over that. <laughs> Typical kids of show business people. It's like, right, Dad, don't do the shtick, okay? Don't do the characters. <laughs> Just read the story. You know, it's a bedtime story. Don't get too fancy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> but they like it. At some level, they don't want to admit it, but they <laughs> they like to see it, I think. Of course. <laughs> Give them street cred with their friends. Hey, my dad did. Right. Yeah. 
Okay, one other television thing I want to mention, and then we'll talk about the sound recordings that you did for a little while. Oh, yeah. There's just the one line in your uh, list of credits. So it, it just got me curious. John Doe. Was that the Fox TV series? You know, that was the movie of the same name, I think. Yeah. Okay. It's under television, so... Well, it might have been that TV show then, because if it's under that, that means I did work on it. And uh, I'm faithful about recording the things that I do. In many cases, though, it's really odd, Randy, because I'll get brought in to do source music that's supposed to come out of a jukebox or a car radio or, or you know something like that, and I'll have no idea where they put this thing in the, and I never see the show. If it's not a show that I ever watch, it can come and go, and I'll have no idea how they used it. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'll say, you know, I worked on that show, and I never watched it. (laughs) It's a peculiar thing about our business that, you know, that can happen, actually. Mm -hmm. So it's an odd one. I I think I worked on that, and I have no idea what I did. But most likely it was something where I was sort of doing a sound alike maybe of some character that you know on in a recording or something that's entirely possible. I'm trying to think back to the show, and I know that there was a it wasn't a musical by any stretch, but there was a fair amount of music in it yeah. as far as background things and and that sort of thing so what I get called to do a lot is is sound alike stuff or you know it's not an exact sound alike something in the style of. Uh, but not so close that someone's going to get sued. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which in this day and age, that's a tricky balance to do. When I got into the business, soundalikes were all the rage, and then people start get, getting sued for doing, you know, versions of things which were obviously nods to some artist or other. Mm-hmm. And then it got very litigious. <laughs> and after a while, they stopped, you know, in, in commercial and ad music, they stopped doing soundalikes because they knew that they were probably going to get sued by somebody's estate. Yeah. But uh, when I started, they wanted exact soundalikes. And then after I was, well, make it sound kind of like, but not exactly. <laughs> Which is, that's you're treading a fine line when you do that. I was just going to say that must be an incredibly delicate balance there. Yeah, it is. It's, and the, the sad news is that most production companies now hire or at least have a consultant musicologist who listens to their stuff and says, okay, I don't think you'll get sued for this one. It's close, but not exact. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they're forced to do that so that, they, that you know, they're not involved in uh, plagiarism lawsuits, you know, or you're infringing on... You know, that thing you did sounded like John Wayne, for instance. Okay, and I'm, we're the John Wayne estate, and we don't know. That's just an example. But, you know, there, there are things like that where people have been sued for silly things. Mm-hmm. In one case, I remember the Frito-Lays co- company wanted to have this character named Chester Cheetah. Oh, yes. You know, and he was really hipster, wore dark glasses, had a beret, and he's supposed to talk like this, right? Well, I mean, there have been those kind of, you know, raspy voice, hipster kind of characters around forever and ever, right? Right. But they made the unfortunate mistake of contacting Tom Waits about doing, voicing this character. And he didn't personally care to do, you know, voicing an an ad campaign, so he turned him down. So they get somebody else to come in and essentially do their version of Tom Waits. And at that point, they're fair game because it can be proved that they approached this artist 
and something appeared on air which was substantially similar. Mm-hmm. So, you know, somebody got sued successfully, and that became a floodgate of things like that. Oh, I had no idea how that really started to come about. Oh, yeah. In fact, it it got so huge, there were lawsuits. You know, I remember Bette Midler doing a lawsuit because somebody came out with a version of Do You Want to Dance, kind of like her hit version of that song. Well, the thing was, she didn't have the rights to the song. It was written by, you know, some 60s guy, and she had just slowed it down and kind of made it more dreamy. And when she turned somebody down for recording it, they got one of her background singers, the Harlettes, <laughs> to sing it just like her. So, But then she was claiming, I'm the only person in the universe who can really sound like that, so it was ironic that way, too. Wow. But she was she was successful, and hey, I don't, you know, when you work to create an image, even if you synthesized it from people that pre-exist, you can say, look, I came up with that character, and I took bits of this and that and the other, and I made my character, so now you got to stay off it without permission. I get that. Mm-hmm. Then it got really silly where when somebody wanted to record an instrumental version of uh, Santana's Black Magic Woman, and they had somebody do the guitar solo in the middle, mm-hmm. and then Carlos Santana's representatives contacted him and said, you know, that sounded very much like Carlos's guitar sound. <laughs> so they, they sued because someone was going, so, hey, it's it's the business we're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you going to do? You have to laugh. Exactly. You have to laugh. Exactly. Well, we could probably spend forever talking about the rest of even the television and movie stuff. I'm just, I looked through the list of, of like, uh, you know, America's Funniest Home Videos, Murder, She Wrote, Walker, Texas Ranger, oh, Star Trek yeah. The Next Generation, Rags yeah. to Riches. I could spend forever on those, too. But There are some fun shows. In some cases, like Walker, Texas Ranger, I would just come in and do tons of them because they always had to have scenes that were, you know, in a bar with music on a jukebox or, you know, music coming from a car radio. That kept me pretty busy for a period of time. You know? I bet. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was the gift that has kept on giving. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. Good. Yeah. Well, let's move on. We'll talk about sound recordings for oh, yeah. a little bit and, okay. and then continue on here. I mean, when I printed this out, I went through and I just... I copied and pasted it into a Word document, and then I just left in the ones that really caught my attention, sure. and sound recordings is two pages. I know. <laughs> Silly, isn't it? Well, and you know, there are a lot of people that I know in this business, friends of mine, who primarily you know, sing on records, and oh my goodness, you know, some of the guys, like my friend Oren Waters, he and his two sisters, the Waters family, have probably sung on thousands thousands, not no exaggeration, of pop recordings. He says his first recording was You've Lost That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers, you know. Uh-huh. And and he's and they've been singing ever since. So I look at people like that and I'm a mere an amateur, mere amateur compared to them. Wow. That's a really long time. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They've been at it a long while. But I'm happy enough to have been have sung on some real actual records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see on here the second CD I ever got. What's that? Mickey Unwrapped. <laughs> I have kind of an unusual taste in music. <laughs> see, you. I like your thinking, though. You know, that was in the era when they had all those boy bands, you know, when boy bands were getting popular. Mm-hmm. And I just remember they said, look, look, you know, we need to have some rap. 
and some kind of urban sounding, you know, singing on these things. And they weren't quite sure how it would work, you know, with Mickey and the different characters. So they did a number of really interesting, you know, records at the time. We kind of found our way through those and, and said, okay, well, here's us doing party songs. Here's us doing dance songs. Here's us, you know, here's us doing whatever. <laughs> right. And they actually got, I think, one of the boy bands that was hot at the time. I can't remember whether it was, you know, 98 Degrees or, you know, one of those really cute boy bands was singing on it. And we ended up replacing a lot of their vocals because, hey, they were wonderful guys, but they couldn't, you know, sing fast and accurately for a limited budget project like ours. <laughs> right. <laughs> so they got replaced by pros who sounded like them. Interesting. Oh, yeah, we did that on yeah. several things. Yeah, I remember Tag Team did oh, yeah. one of the songs on there. Right. Remember Little Tiny Rappers? Uh-huh. Yeah, it was fun stuff, too. Because before that, I think Disney always had the reputation of being really fun and family-oriented, but not really cutting-edge or trendy in, a, in any musical sense. Right. It's very safe. Yeah, and very safe. And I think they wanted to kind of venture gently into uh, slightly deeper musical water and, and try some things that maybe were more uh, contemporary and to see, you know, whether or not the franchise could bear it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they've done a number of those things. Now, of course, with Radio Disney and, and the Disney Channel and all these wonderful outlets for kid-related programming, there's a steady stream of projects. Oh, sure. Uh, that they, you know, that that Walt Disney Records and the other Disney offshoots, Hollywood Records, they do a a, a lot of great recording, but it wasn't always that way. Usually, it started out years ago them just doing kind of, okay, here's our audio books, here's us, you know, reading versions of our animated specials or doing music from our movies. Mm-hmm. And then I think they branched out, you know, in more recent years. Yeah, they definitely have. Oh, yeah. so, and wow. hopefully you get tapped a lot of that. <laughs> you know, yeah. And I, I was the you know, the beneficiary of a lot of that because they were just starting to try these things in the in the you know, the nineties and into the the new millennium. You know, and so hey, we go, Okay, well, what if we do dance mixes? Okay, what if we do superstar kids or you know, songs about buccaneers, you know? And uh, so I've got a chance, had a chance to sing on a lot of those fun things. Very cool. Do them with dance mixes. <laughs> <laughs> Do any of the Disney projects that you worked on for albums, either original soundtracks or uh, any of the other albums, stand out to you as particular memories or ones that you really enjoyed? You know, there's, there are a lot of fun ones. Um, some of my, my most enjoyable ones actually are some early on ones because there was no template in place and we got to make it up as we went along. There was a woman who did children's music projects for Disney uh, back in the 90s named Robin Frederick and she was very talented, you know, singer, producer, songwriter herself. And she would have us in, and we would do things like Disney travel songs, you know, all songs about traveling. Or mm -hmm. funny food songs. You know, we would come in and, and, and do, you know, character singing on various songs. and But they were all geared towards sing-along with kids. So very kid-friendly and, you know, very limited budgets, of course. And, 
But we had a great time with them because there was no real, oh, you must do it like this, and you know, there, there's a lot on the line if you don't do it exactly like the last one. There was nothing like that. It hadn't really been done that much. So we had a great time. Excellent. Yeah, it's okay. it's fun. When you get into a project where they've had several versions before that, even the ones where they have Radio Disney, you know, their greatest hits kind of things, a lot of those are them just licensing the masters of different artists that get played on their radio. So that's different. I prefer the ones where they say, okay, here's an old song that was on the radio way back when. Why don't you do a new Disney version of it? Because then I can synthesize things I do well. I can sound like an artist, but I can make up something. And and sometimes it's more fun that way. Hmm. Interesting. So I've done that a few times. Wow. Yeah, I'm trying to decide how to put a list of just the ones that stand out to me in the show notes. And it's going to make the show notes so long nobody's going to read them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have to go do that. But it's hilarious that the first two CDs that you ever purchased were ones that I sang on. I know, right? <laughs> that just proves how old I am. <laughs> well, I was a little late to the CD game, too. So. All right. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I'm going to hold on to that then. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's hilarious. And even besides Disney, I was looking, and uh, I don't know if you want to comment on any of these for a little bit, but I see that you had sang uh, on CDs with Rosemary Clooney, and then Stan Freeberg, very unlike Rosemary Clooney. Oh, and, my goodness, yeah. <laughs> you know, Vince Gill and Amy Grant, and one of my favorites, yeah. Mary oh, Rice Hopkins. Yep, and you know, one of the things in common with several of those artists is that I got to work on their Christmas records. Yeah, I noticed that. And and here's the reason why, Randy, because um, a lot of times when artists do their typical normal recordings, they kind of work with their band and their their you know particular singers and so forth, and it tends to be a pretty small little group of folks. But a lot of times when they get ready to do a Christmas album, they want to do them like the ones they grew up loving, you know, with mm. a big lush orchestra and a big bunch of singers and you know, arrangers and horns and everything. So typically, they'll expand the amount of people that work with them on their Christmas records. So I've been blessed enough to work on Christmas records by artists, you know, country artists like Vince Gill and, you know, contemporary Christian artists like Andy Grant, where when it came time to do their Christmas record, they said, let's do it like a Nat King Cole record, okay, with wonderful arrangements and big choir on everything, and it's a throwback for them. It really is a more traditional kind of Christmassy music than their regular music is. Mm-hmm. So that's my secret for some of those ones. Uh, and then Rosemary Clooney, she, again, I sang on her, her uh, record White Christmas. You know, it was late in her career, and we had met her um, working on some shows that she helped produce. For instance, she did a real fascinating thing in L.A., called the L.A. Singers Salute to the Country Songwriters. Because she herself grew up in Kentucky, rural Kentucky, and loved country music, although she was never known as a country artist. She was always a, you know, a swing and pop music singer. Right. She organized these events where they would showcase the best of country music, but done by L.A.-based singers. And I was in the house band for a bunch of these live shows that she did, you know, and met her back in the 90s. And when it came time for her to do a record, she said, hey, would you be on it? Sure. Wow. So you got invited by her to be on it. Yeah, just because, you know, she'd worked with a bunch of us singers who were, 
kind of the house singers backing up everybody that came on this singer's salute to the country songwriter show. Mm-hmm. And that was a spin-off of the fact that I used to be the vocal contractor and, and led singers for things like the Academy of Country Music Awards show every year when it was there were there are two basic big shows in country music and uh, the ACM Awards, the Academy of Country Music Awards were one of the shows. And then the Country Music Association, or CMA, awards are the other one. <laughs> That's not at all confusing. Yeah, no, they, and they have the same three letters in it, so that makes it <laughs> nice and messy. Yeah. But one would be one time of year, and the other would be another time of year. Um, CMAs are almost always Nashville-based, but for many years, the ACMs were West Coast-based, and Dick Clark Productions did them, and, um, and I had the pleasure of putting together singers for those shows. And that's where I met a lot of these artists because they would come through. I mean, all the legends you'd think of in the world, plus all the you know the hit artists. And a lot of times we'd sing backgrounds for them on those on that award show. It has since sadly become a, a show which became more and more what I call a karaoke show, uh, in that the artists would either lip sync or they would sing to their you know studio tracks and not run the risk of having a live band with singers backing them up. So the record labels, I think, are partially to blame for that. Each year, it got to be less and less of the singers actually singing live on the broadcast with the house band. And eventually, uh, there wasn't any work for us to do, and they moved the awards show from L.A. to Las Vegas, where it gets done to this day. <laughs> wow. So yeah, it was kind of a sea change because country has always been kind of traditional and country artists always were good live performers because that's what they grow up doing. You know, they don't lip sync. They didn't. <laughs> right, didn't. <laughs> because, you know, it just wasn't uh, kosher. It just wasn't considered right. You get out there and your fans know you and you meet and greet and you do your music live. So it was kind of a big sea change to see it go from the live music thing to a, okay, we're going to play your track from your record, and then you, all you have to do is follow along with your in-ear monitor and pretend like you're singing, okay? Huh. I'm enough of a traditionalist. I kind of liked it the old way. I'm with you on that, yeah. I like live singing, even on even in front of people like the academies. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. You know, for better or for worse, we like it live. Right. <laughs> now, with Mary Rice Hopkins, I see that on several of the albums, uh, you actually played instruments as well as doing vocals. Yeah, that's fun. You know, Mary's such a sweet lady, and um, she's, for those who don't know of her, she's a really wonderful Christian uh, children's music artist, a really terrific songwriter and singer. And, um, and my path crossed doing some kids' records for her. And you know, she's the kind of person that when she finds out that you know how to play something or do something, she says, "Oh, that's great! Why don't you do that on this song?" So when she found out I, you know, I doodle around and play a lot of different instruments, some badly, some not so badly. She <laughs> says, "Listen, you got to play on my record." And so she's always been nice enough to allow me, you know, room to play fun things on her records. Oh, that's great. Yeah, she's very. And she, most recently, she, I think she's been doing um, TBN Kids uh, Music and Puppetry show on Saturday mornings and having mm-hmm. really great success with it. So I'm, I'm happy for her because, you know, 
it's tough to be a kid's artist for a lot of years because, you know, you lose your target audience and you have a new batch of kids that have to kind of be introduced to you. <laughs> That's true. Every couple of years they turn over. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be some pressure there. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but, no, she's she's great. And uh, when I got into the business, ironically, I moved to L.A. in the mid-'80s, and I was a trumpet player. I, I was not a singer at all. I expected to be playing trumpet in the studios and doing arranging, you know, doing composing and arranging. Hmm. So, yeah, singing happened almost accidentally for me just because I had singers not show up on some of my recording sessions, and I had written parts, and I knew what it was supposed to sound like. Ah, yeah. So, <laughs> you sort of draft yourself because you yeah. know it's supposed to be there. Yeah, exactly. And after a few of those, people said, oh, you're that singer that plays a little bit. <laughs> but I didn't, start, I didn't start out that way, see? So I started out as, a, you know, as an instrumentalist. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So the strange, strange but true story of how we, we find ourselves into what we do in life. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I call it serendipity. It's a good word for it. It's an underused word. Well, you know what? It's it really is a process of you find what your gifts are, and once you found your gifting, um, you find the things where you fit. You know where you can do your best work, and things that you truly enjoy and love doing. And for me, I I gravitated toward that, even though, you know, I didn't have all the training in the singing area that I did as a a writer and a player, but I found a lot of things transferred well. Mm-hmm. So things I learned in one area, I could actually use in another area. Yeah. When I'm not doing this and some of the other things I do, I actually work as a uh, life coach. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the main things I work with people on is what are you good at? Mm-hmm. Now, how does that tie in with your passions and you know your dreams and that sort of thing? And what skills or aspects of the thing that you do now translates over into those? Sure. And you know what? You know, as a as a life coach, that if you can match the things people have a great passion and love for with things that they are gifted to do, have real aptitude for, that's a recipe for complete success. Because then the job is never a job. It's always the most fun you can have and still get paid for it. Exactly. You've been listening in on my coaching sessions, haven't you? Apparently I have. No, it's just because I find that's true. And so anybody who's doing good coaching is matching those things up. And and I was blessed enough to, without anybody who was coaching me, but happened to stumble across some things and then realize, oh, no, this is really wonderful. Right, right. I, I should be doing this. <laughs> and it's it's a story you hear repeated for people uh, a lot of times in the performing arts and things like that, you know, because it's considered not a sensible career. You know, what are you really going to do when you grow up? And some of us just never grow up, and we find ways to do the thing we love. Mm-hmm. We look at people when they're in development part of that process and say things like, when are you going to grow up and get a real job? And then we look at people who have succeeded in it and go, wow, I wish I could do that. Yeah, it's funny. There's that disconnect, isn't there? Mm -hmm. That, you know, parents will say, when are you going to get a real job? And yet they admire creative people. Right. So sometimes the kid has to say, look, Ma, you know, that person you think is so great started out waiting tables. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. And I could wait tables, too, but I really want to do what she's doing. Exactly. So, I, you know, there is a, a bit of we have to co- connect the dots ourselves, and 
hopefully we have people in our lives that can help us do it. Right. Exactly. I um, just want to mention a couple of soundtracks real quick, oh, yeah. uh, and then we can move out of the history of your career and you know, move into some of the other parts. But a couple of my favorite of the Disney movies that you sang on the soundtracks for that I saw on here are A Goofy Movie and Newsies. Oh, yeah. Well, they're both fun ones, and both kind of early on things before the huge chain of animated musical success. You know, a Goofy movie was kind of a small release, and in it, there was a specific part where we were the yodeling possums in Lester's Possum Park. Oh, yes, I remember that. Remember that? You know, where they had yodeling going on? Uh Uh-huh. And it was a strange little kind of backwoods Yahoo version of an amusement park. (laughs) Yeah, it didn't look at all like the Country Bear Jamboree. No, no, not at all. So... We got called in because, you know, who else would be doing harmony yodeling, of course? Yeah, well, and you had your pig oinking experience. Exactly. By that time, I was ready to move on to harmonized yodeling. Exactly. What was very funny is I remember that they they had some people like, you know, a really talented uh, Broadway arranger named Danny Trube, who, you know, did a lot of orchestrations for really famous Broadway musicals and things and worked over the years a lot with Alan Menken and people like that. Well, Danny was writing cues, and how do you write down four-part harmony yodel thing? The answer is you kind of sketch it out, and then you get knuckleheaded people, and they try and do that. (laughs) And that's what we did on a Goofy movie. I remember that being really fun. But... um, Wow. Yeah, of course, that's an animated musical. But then Newsies was, you know, a live action thing. And it's great because now it's come full circle where, you know, they've done the on-Broadway version of it. Right. But back then it was a film musical. And our whole job in it was to bolster the actual young actors on screen, most of whom were kind of in that, my voice is changing era where they weren't all that sure what was going to come flying out of their mouths, especially when they tried singing. So we got a bunch of guys who could sound like we were kind of 13 through 16 year olds. Wow! And we, yeah, you get, hey, we get called upon to do all kinds of stunt singing. That's what I call it. You know, when you sing for people on screen, you're stunt singing. Mm-hmm. And, and in this case, we kind of had to sound like this most of the time. So you know, and with New York accents. So I remember singing a lot of these things, and it was about. 20 of us. <laughs> so, it was great fun. And then you, you hear it and you look and, you know, I, I watched the movie and, and actually forgot that I had been singing in a group of grown-ups. You know, I was one of the teenage paper boys. Wow. I mean, you it just, you get swept up by the whole thing. Okay. We buy into it too. It's so seamlessly done. That's impressive. Oh yeah, it's fun when that happens. Well, that's the whole idea is like any other thing, whether it's special sound effects or visual effects or stunt things, if it's done well, it doesn't take your attention away from the the story. You're just engrossed in, in the action and the story and everything, and you never really notice all these little things that have to technically get done. Mm-hmm. So that's when we know we've done our job right, when nobody goes, that's not the voice that character would have. Right. Because, you know, in so many Disney animated musicals, Somebody voices the character, and another somebody sings on behalf of the character. Mm-hmm. Which, there again, there again is job security for people like myself. 
But, you know, I have to sound like that person would sound if that person could sing. So much so that it's really quite convincing and nobody spends 20 minutes going, that was somebody else. Because that takes you right out of the the whole movie and, and, and pulls you into being a critic. Right, so, right. Just, just like when, you know, they make a mistake in continuity in the movie and you say, okay, this is set in the 1890s. They could not have had a jet contrail overhead. Uh-huh. It takes you right out of the story when that happens. It does, yeah. So in a similar way, if we don't do our jobs right, people spend time worrying about us. And if we do it well, they don't even know we exist. I think it takes a special kind of person to be a performer but to be a performer who looks at their job as if I've done it the way I'm supposed to, people don't actually notice that I've done it. <laughs> you know, usually performers are like, I want to be in the spotlight. That's why I do what I do. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a different subspecies, really, Randy. It's an odd thing. And what I find is true about most off-camera performers, if they specialize either in voiceover or singing, they do have less of the gigantic ego of I must be in the spotlight I must be the star the stage and screen everyone must adore me they must all recognize me because you realize when you're voicing characters that you're never gonna get that at your best people might hear your voice and go hey are you the guy that does the Perry the platypus theme or you know my voice actor friends is sometimes they'll get called upon to do things that they've made kind of famous and they'll do that character, you know, like, oh, Rob Paulson, for instance, great guy who who did the voice of Pinky and Pinky in the Brain, you know? Mm-hmm. He's a brilliant voice actor. He's done all these things, and you would never recognize him on the street. He's so very unassuming and every man looking. And even when he talks, it's not as though you suddenly go, wait a minute, I know that voice. But he can whip into one of the characters and if you're a fan of the stuff, you'll immediately recognize what he's done. Right. You have to be somebody who's content with being loved by your peers and, and a few aficionados, and that's about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've noticed that with some of the, especially voice actors, who have in some ways almost gotten thrust into the spotlight. Yeah. And it seems to be mainly with the actors from the Clone Wars TV series. Right. Because uh, they're at Star Wars weekends and all of this, and you know James Arnold Taylor and Ashley Eckstein co-host oh, right. Star Wars weekend, yeah. and they're all about behind the scenes, do the voice, and when you put them in front of people, they're very humble and authentic. Yeah. And even James Arnold Taylor, he's done a show for a couple of years at Star Wars weekends, which I had the privilege of seeing on YouTube because oh, I haven't neat. made it out for Star Wars weekends yet. But it's called Obi Wan and Beyond. Yes. And have you seen that? No, but I've heard good things about it. It's fantastic. And in fact, when you were talking about doing the the oinks in the different ways, it reminded me of a section he does on there called uh, Use Only as Directed. (laughs) And it's him. He kind of recreates this in a recording studio booth, and he does Use Only as Directed. And then the director, producer, whatever, comes on like, okay, but could you do it like this? Yes. And then he does it. Okay, now can you do it like this? And goes through about 15 different versions. Yeah. Okay, let us consider... You know, we're going to go with the first one. Yeah. Yeah, they circle back <laughs> yeah. around to the very first instinct you had. That's another thing that's a, it's a running joke for those of us in the voiceover and character singing world is 
is that many times our first instincts are correct, but we have to allow the people producing and directing <laughs> to come around to our point of view, which usually means humoring them for a long, long period of time sometimes. <laughs> and, then, right. and then after we've tried every possible permutation, they go back to the thing where we said, uh, we don't want to say we told you so, but that was the first way we did it an hour and a half ago. Exactly. You know, <laughs> but it is that's the funny part of our business. But yeah, it's loving those kinds of things that are very geek-tastic to us, and and we're impressed, and we read the credits, and you know we cheer on one another. That's another thing is it's really a pretty supportive little bunch of people because. We're not trying to claw our way to the top on the backs of everybody else. I mean, maybe there's the rare exception, but for the most part, we've resigned ourselves to realizing we're not going to become incredibly rich and famous by doing this anonymous work. Right. We have to love doing it. Mm -hmm. And we do. <laughs> Good. Yeah. And speaking of doing that work, you said you started working for Disney in the, about the mid-'80s? Yeah, exactly. So, and you're still working for them even up to the present. So that's yeah, it's remarkable, and I love years. it. You know, but you know they've been kind enough. You know, after every job, as people will tell you in the freelance world, you know, when the phone is finished ringing, you're unemployed until the next job. So, since I'm not a staff person in any way with Disney, I rely upon their kindness as hirers to say, well, I think he'd be right for this role or that role, or I'd love to have him come on board and do this. So I'm always continually impressed and amazed every time they call me and say, how would you like to do this? <laughs> I think it puts you in a position that most people are in. You're just in the unique position to realize it, where yes. <laughs> you know, almost every time you do a job, you're in essence auditioning for the next one at the same time. You know, you're right. Even if you work for the same employer, well, there's rarely this, you know, work for somebody for 50 or 60 years and then retire. Uh, if there ever was such a thing, we don't have it much anymore. But I think those of us who are kind of entrepreneurial and self-employed, we experience it, you know, that, hey, after each job, we are unemployed. Then we look for the next job. And our career consists of many short little jobs that equal a career. Yep. And I, you know, it's really a good faith tester because you, you know, you have nothing you can sit and say, well, you know, I always make this amount of money at this time of year, and I'll always be able to pay my bills. In a way, without being glib about it, it teaches you to really, you know, rely and have faith that, hey, when this comes around, I think I'm going to be provided for. I think I'm going to be able to do the thing that I love to do. Yeah. You know? So that's the beauty of it, really. And it's and we just realize it I think more than somebody who works for an employer and could of course be downsized or laid off at any point, but most people think it's permanent and we realize it's not. Right. That's a special gift that you have to be able to realize that. Yeah. You know what we don't I don't know always haven't always looked at it as a gift. You know, especially when you're trying to budget and, you know, your spouse is saying, where is the money going to come from? Right, right. But we love it. And, you know, the one thing I think about working in this business, my worst day in this business is better than the best day that I ever spent working in the cannery or other non-musical jobs that I have done. <laughs> really. And, and, you know... Despite the fact that this is up and down and sometimes we're feast and sometimes we're famine, it still trumps 
um, a lot of other things I've done in my life, and I've done, you know, a variety of odd jobs and things over the years, and and I know what I'm not gifted in. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's as important to know that as it is to know what you are. You know, that's kind of part. Once you burn enough bridges behind you, that helps you solidify your life goals. <laughs> I don't know that you want to tell your clients that, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. Yeah, burn those bridges, baby. You're going to be boldly stepping out. <laughs> <laughs> Although sometimes there is something to be said for that. I can't remember the name yep. of the explorer, but I remember it was the Spanish setting sail to yeah. the Americas. And man, they landed on the coast, and first thing he did was burn the ships. Yep. It's like, we're here, we're not going back. Yeah, exactly. There's not an option. Well, and I get that. I really do. I think in some ways, I think mentally and emotionally, when you're doing this kind of work, you have to set yourself to say, you know what? I know there will be ups and downs, and I know there will be discouragement, and I will get rejected a lot. And yet, this is not just pie in the sky, Pollyanna. I have a marketable gift, skill set, and I think I can do this. And a lot of people have told me that, so I need to hang in there and prove that to myself or prove that I can't. And uh, if somebody has that mindset, then they'll either make it or they will have really given it the good college try and said, you know what, this is not for me. I, I, maybe I'm, I'm not as good as I hoped I would be or, you know, the competition is too stiff or I dislike the uncertainty, you know, whatever. But they'll know that having really tried it. If you never try it, you'll never know. Exactly. Now, what is it way back there in the mid-'80s that got you interested in working with Disney uh, or for doing what you're doing with Disney in the first place? Well, for me, I always, I loved the fact that Disney was just, you know, they, they were the best as far as just family-friendly programming. I went, you know, I was the one that w watched all those Disney, you know, old yeller. Oh, my goodness, you know. Uh, you know, that's where you ball your eyes out, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of things. Or remember they would have all these nature films and stuff, you know, the the, uh, the wonderful world of Disney, and the, they'd have the world is a carousel of color, you know, and they'd have Charlie the Cougars, you know, I just remember the guy that narrated that, he was classic, you know, he was kind of a good old boy from Texas, and he would always say stuff like, and Charlie was just about as lonesome as a cougar could be, uh -huh. you know, I just thought, okay, now that's, that's something I love. And I grew up in, you know, small-town, rural Oregon, Bend, Oregon, Ranch City at the time. Really? I actually have family that up until recently lived in Bend, Oregon. Uh, I still have a – my stepmom lives there. Two of my brothers live there. Went to junior high there. And it's not the center of the uh, recording universe. So <laughs> It's not. You know, it's kind of a ranch and mill town that has now become a lovely touristy destination for people who like hanging out in the Cascade Mountains. But, you know – for me, I just saw that I saw that whole model of you know these wonderful movies and television shows, and then occasionally, as a huge treat, we got to go down to Disneyland, which was this exotic world that you know nobody had ever experienced where I grew up. Uh huh. So, you know, I went went down with my grandma and, and got to see all the when they had e tickets. Remember that? Oh yes. You know, boy, oh boy. So for me, it was early on, I was a huge fan and, you know, never expecting that I would ever work for Disney, just thinking it was really terrific. So when I was in L.A., Disney was one of the really big, 
you know, major studios in town, and it made sense that as I made inroads in the working in the post-production world, that I was going to work on some Disney project somewhere, and I was just thrilled. You know, I couldn't believe it. Wow, I'm working on Disney. <laughs> uh, was there a time when you started doing that where you were something like, "Wow, you know what? I'm doing something really special here. I'm doing something really cool." Yeah, there there have been times when, you know, we've gotten a chance to do fun things. Like, remember when they finally made a the Tigger movie? You know, a full length animated movie featuring. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're, we're huge, huge Disneyland, Disneyland fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland podcast, we share current resort news, 
some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www.talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a Mickey, Mickey day. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Randy Crenshaw for again being my guest, and to you for listening. If you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity, and you'd like to share a positive story... Email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY anytime 24 hours a day. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, let's talk. In fact, I've had somebody do exactly that just recently, and I'm working on getting her on an upcoming episode. If you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience and had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic or had any special Disney experience you want to share, I'd love to hear from you, too. Please email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review it in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. Those really help make the podcast more visible, so it's easier for people to find, and I'd appreciate it. In fact, I have four ratings right now on iTunes, and if I get one more, then it'll actually show an average star rating. So if you go onto iTunes in particular and leave a review, preferably four or five stars, but please do be honest, then I'd really appreciate that this time. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like, in this case, it's going to have the link to Ears for Isaac, which again will be storiesofthemagic.com slash EFI. Please like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic. Finally, this episode has been brought to you again by Leaving Conformity Coaching. If you're looking for more joy, passion, and purpose in your life, let me help you break free of your limiting, performance-based natural identity and embrace your supernatural kingdom identity. To find out more about how I can help you, access some free resources, and read my blog, Faith and the Magic Kingdom, visit leavingconformitycoaching.com stories. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line 734-23-STORY. 
And don't forget to visit the website storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.